pray as we dig in. Um, Father, thank you so much for this text uh, that we're looking at today. Thank you that uh, we get this insight into uh, what it's like to be in your presence. And Father, I pray that as we look at that today, we would get a little bit more of a sense of that awe uh, that John experienced. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in an article for Inc. Magazine about astronauts, yes, astronauts, we're talking about astronauts, uh, author Jessica Stillman writes this. She said, you might think that being trapped in a tiny, potentially deadly capsule far from help and many of the comforts of home would be a strain on psychological health. But decades of experience with manned spaceflight show that astronauts cope surprisingly well with the rigors of space. Then she says, why? Why do they do that? How can they cope with that? Why is that? And the reason, she says, is awe. Awe. And then she goes on to say that being suspended above the glowing blue orb of Earth offers a tremendous and mind-broadening shift in perspective. According to scientists who have studied the phenomenon, the jaw-dropping awe astronauts feel gives them a stronger connection to their fellow humans and a shot of incredible well-being. And then she goes on in the rest of the article to argue that awe is actually the antidote to anxiety. And not only that, but it, it actually reduces uh, a sense of being self-involved. And so what is awe? Well, awe is defined by California Irvine psychologist Paul Piff this way. He says, awe is that sense of wonder we feel in the presence of something vast that transcends our understanding of the world. In other words, something uh, awe is something bigger than us. It's something with more glory, something heavier, weightier. Now, the intent of Christian worship is actually to do the very same thing. It's to create a sense of, of awe. And so when a person worships God, it's actually meant to lead that person into a sense of awe. And we're now in week two of a series called The Well-Worn Path. And in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at our liturgy. And liturgy, by the way, it's just a repeated pattern of worship that is designed to form and shape our character. And so why, why do we do a liturgy? Why do we do that? Well, the reason is because a liturgy helps us more than probably anything else actually experience spiritual growth. Going through a liturgy regularly is the, the thing that helps us more than anything else become spiritually mature. And the way to do that is to walk what Eugene Peterson, quoting Frederick Nietzsche, calls walking the path of the long obedience in the same direction. And what we're talking about is a well-worn path walked by probably millions of Christians for almost 2,000 years. And so the goal of our liturgy, the goal of doing this series, is to get the gospel lived in every area of our lives. And so our liturgy is actually, it's designed to be like a counter-liturgy to the one that our culture is, uh, the ones that our culture is constantly giving us. Because you see, our culture wants us to move fast to be self-absorbed, to be self-righteous, to be a consumer. And so it's designed all these ways to, to get us to think that way and to become that way. But instead, what if a group of people right in the center of Los Angeles, the place that preaches fast pace and self-absorption more than any other place on earth, what if some people in this city curated this counter-liturgy and did that daily, did that weekly, did that yearly? And instead of moving at the pace of our culture, which is fast and instantaneous, what if some people in the center of Los Angeles curated a liturgy 
that caused them to move at the pace of God at three miles an hour, walking the path of that long obedience in the same direction. And just imagine the impact on your life. Imagine the impact on your family's life. Imagine the impact on our city. And so this is what we're trying to become as a church. This is why we have a liturgy. And so if you've been around Christ Church for any length of time, or even just been here this morning, you know that our liturgy follows these four patterns, these four parts of looking up, down, up, and out. Up to worship, down to confess and bring our requests to God, raised up by the good news of the gospel, and then sent out to live the gospel and to share it with our friends, family, and neighbors. And so our liturgy is the way that we are slowing down to walk with God this long obedience in the same direction, this well-worn path that leads to spiritual maturity. And so we are actually intending, as I mentioned last week, to be what my friend called us. We're actually intending to be slow church. That's the idea. And so ultimately what we're saying is, the liturgy looks like this. Can you go to the next slide? It looks like this. And so uh, it, it works like this little cycle. And so looking up, is that's what the throne there represents, looking up to worship God on his throne. But as we saw last week, that when we see God as he is, that causes us then to look down and confess. And then the good news of the gospel is that arrow that comes back up, we're raised up, and then we're sent out to live in light of it. And the, so the point is we're trying to, uh, with, to make with this is, that spiritual growth happens by walking through this day by day by day, week by week by week, year by year by year. In other words, spiritual growth happens slowly and over time. And so actually the whole of the life of a Christian looks like this next slide. Can you go to the next one? This is the whole of a life of a Christian. It's just this over and over and over and over and over again. And so each week in the series, we're digging into one of those four postures. And so this week we're digging into the first one, that's looking up. And that's why we began by talking about awe. And what psychologists have been pointing out only recently is that regularly experiencing awe actually shapes and forms a person's character only in positive ways. What they're finding is that it actually having awe regularly has no negative effects on a person. And by the way, this isn't a new idea. In fact, Christians have believed and practiced this idea for centuries that awe or worship, or to use the language of our liturgy, looking up, actually turns you into a person, they say, with pro-social behaviors, it reduces your anxiety, and it actually makes you less self-involved. And so the best place to see how this works in the pages of Scripture is to look at another heavenly throne room narrative, uh, similar to one we looked at last week in Isaiah 6. And so let's look together at Revelation chapter 4, and we're actually going to bleed into chapter 5. So three parts to our sermon today. Part one, what we're joining when we worship. Part two, what worship does to us. And then part three, what worship does for others. So what we're joining, what it does to us, and what it does for others. So part one, what we're joining when we worship. Now here's what I want us to see. Worship doesn't actually begin when we ring the bell in the steeple and pick up our liturgies here on Sunday mornings. Uh, when we do that, when we come in here and we stand up and we read the liturgy and we sing the songs, we are actually joining in with something that is already happening. And the picture we get from this passage and from Isaiah 6, which we looked at last week, is that worship is something that is continuously happening around the throne in heaven. Uh, here's how John describes it in his very Isaiah-like vision in Revelation 4. Uh, he begins with one seated on a throne. But this one that's seated on the throne, he's so glorious, he can't, John can't describe him very well. Look at, look at this description. I love this. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. 
That's his description. And notice John doesn't tell us about his face or his eyes or his hair color or how long his beard is or what color his clothes are or how tall he is. He doesn't tell any of that. All you can pick up from John's description is that the one seated on the throne is bright and glorious. In fact, it seems that he is so bright, John can't even look at him because, you know, it's like looking at a bright light. Your eyes just, just turn away. And so his attention then turns quickly to see what is surrounding this throne. Look at this. You see, starting in verse 4, it says, There are 24 more thrones, and on those thrones are 24 elders dressed in white and wearing crowns. And not only that, but in verse 6, you see that there are these four fantastic creatures. One is like a lion, one is like an ox, one is like a man, and one is like an eagle. And then coming out of the throne, it says, are flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne, it says that there are seven lamps burning. And then it says something strange. It says, and these seven lamps are the seven spirits of God. Which sounds very strange to our modern ears because you say, well, I thought God only had one spirit, the Holy Spirit. What's up with the seven spirits? What is that? Well, that's just an ancient way of actually saying the Holy Spirit. Uh, In the book of Revelation, the number seven is connected to this idea of completeness or wholeness. And so in this circumstance, when it says the seven spirits of God, it's saying the most complete, the most whole spirit of God. In other words, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is before the throne. So that's who's surrounding the throne, these glorious, exalted beings. But then notice what they're doing. Look at verse 8. These four incredible creatures with their six wings and their eye-covered bodies, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. Now, if you were here last week, that should sound very familiar to you. Because what did Isaiah say the beings that were surrounding the throne were saying over and over and over again without ceasing? Holy, holy, holy. And John is writing this uh, a little bit more than 700 years later. And so the soundtrack of heaven has gone on for over 700 years of holy, holy, holy. That is the continuous soundtrack of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then if you read on into verse 19, you see that whenever that happens... It says, then these 24 elders, they get up off their thrones and they fall down before the one who is at the center of the throne and they lay their crowns before him. And then they say in verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now this whole scene is meant to give us a picture of God's transcendence. His complete and utter glory that if you saw him, no matter who comes into contact with God, the result will always be awe. It always is worship. And the way that John describes this is to say that this worship has been going on for all eternity. Remember they said uh, the one who was. has been going on for all eternity past. If you can speak of eternity in terms of past, that's what they've been doing. And then it's who is and who is to come. And so what what is this showing us? Well, it's showing us that when we worship, we are joining in with something that is already going on. We are invited into something that has been happening for all eternity past. Uh, Years ago, when I was a student living in downtown Chicago, my, my college dorm was on the path of the Chicago Marathon. Uh, and so, uh, in fact, it went up LaSalle Boulevard, which is right outside my front door, uh, and then it came back down Wells Street, uh, 
uh, right behind my dorm building. And so my building was surrounded by the path to the Chicago Marathon. And the way that it would work is if you didn't leave before the race started, you were stuck. Like we could not leave the block that we were on if the marathon had started. And so we, it was Sunday morning, as they always do, and we were, we were going to church, and we forgot that the marathon was starting. And so we didn't leave early. And so we're, you know, we're there, we're dressed in our church clothes, you know, button-down shirt, all tucked in with our nice trousers and leather shoes and giant Bibles under our belts because we're Bible college students. And we walk out, and there's a huge crowd there to cheer on the marathon. And just as we walk out, the first runners start to come. And we're like, oh, no, we're stuck. And then more runners come, and more runners come, and we're standing there, and I'm like, well, I, I guess maybe we have to skip church today. And my friend who I was with, who also had his giant leather Bible under his arm, just looks at me, shrugs his shoulder, goes, eh. And he jumps in the race. And he starts running with the marathon runners. And I'm like, okay. So then I jump in the race with him. And so here we are, two guys in their church clothes, giant Bibles under their arms, just running in the Chicago Marathon. And we're trying to work our way across the South Boulevard to the other side where that church is. And so it takes about a block or a block and a half to get to the other side. And look, when I joined the marathon for that one block, I was joining something that was already happening, something that had a huge momentum. You couldn't stop it. I joined into something that was already happening. The marathon did not start. They didn't fire the gun when I jumped in. And, by the way, when I got to the other side of the street, it carried on long after me. Now, that is a picture of what we're doing every Sunday when we worship. Worship is like that. We are joining in with something that has a momentum of its own, something that has been happening before we joined in and will carry on happening after we lock the doors. And though in many ways, I know like you, you think, okay, well, worship doesn't seem like that. I know in many ways it seems ordinary, you know, reading things off a piece of paper, singing familiar songs, praying familiar prayers. I know that seems so ordinary, but when we do that, that's what we're joining. It's like we've jumped into the marathon. We're joining something extraordinary, something that has been going on for all eternity and will go on for all eternity. And in that way, worship is never just ordinary. But here's my point. Doing it ordinarily, meaning doing it regularly, weekly, daily, that is how we foster in us a sense of awe. That is how we keep ourselves focused on God who is seated on the throne. And it's fostering this sense of awe day by day by day, week by week by week, month by month, year by year. The well-worn path, it's doing that that brings about spiritual maturity. So in other words, what we're talking about is a daily, a weekly, an annual liturgy. That is what brings about spiritual maturity. As we join in with what Isaiah saw, as we join in with what John saw, and so that's what we're joining. That's point one. That's what we're joining when we worship. That then leads us to point two, because point two is what worship does to us. And in short, what worship or what fostering the sense of all, what that does to us is when we join in with what is happening even now in the heavenly throne room, when we worship, when we join that, here's what that is doing to you and I. It is changing us. James K. Smith, a philosopher out of Calvin College, 
in Michigan, he makes the argument that whatever it is that we worship is what most profoundly shapes and forms us into who we are becoming. Whatever we worship is what most profoundly changes us into who or what we are becoming. And so who or what we worship, it actually informs our character, informs our decisions, our dating relationships, our marriages, our parenting, our work. It informs everything about us. And the title of one of uh, James K. Smith's books on the subject, he's written multiple of them, but one of them sums it up perfectly. The title is this, You Are What You Love. Put that one more way. You are most influenced to become like what you love the most. I remember when uh, Tempur-Pedic mattresses first came out. Remember the Space Age mattress? I don't, it's, it's a mattress. I don't know why it's Space Age, but it was, that was their whole thing. Space, you, don't, you don't lay down in space, you float. You don't need a mattress. But whatever, Space Age mattress. And they had these commercials where they would first show you a traditional spring mattress. And uh, they would always have a much smaller, lighter person laying on one side, you know, and they're like having a great time asleep. And then they would have a much larger person with a lot more mass, a lot more weight to them, probably somebody more my size. They'd come and have them lay down on the mattress. And then what would happen? The smaller person would then roll towards and fall towards the heavier person. They could never get any sleep. That was the point they were trying to make. Or they got more sophisticated with their commercials because then they were like, hey, let's do the bowling ball thing. And so what they would do is they'd set up a glass of red wine on one side of the mattress and then they'd stand over it with a giant bowling ball and then they would drop the bowling ball on the mattress and what would happen is it would make such a dent, such an impression in the mattress that the wine glass would fall towards it, spilling red wine all over this beautiful white mattress. And what they were showing is that whatever is heavier makes anything that is lighter fall towards it. Right? Whatever is heaviest makes the deepest impression on the mattress, and everything is drawn towards the heavier object. That's what they're showing. But then they would show you the Tempur-Pedic mattress, and they would do the same test, but the smaller, lighter person wouldn't be affected by the heavier person on the other side, or the bowling ball would just land on the mattress and fall asleep, and the glass of wine would stay standing up. But here's the point. The things or the thing that we love most are like a bowling ball on a non-Tempur-Pedic mattress. Everything in your life is drawn towards it. It's, everything in your life is always drawn towards the heaviest object in your life. And so if money or success or virtue or influence or comfort is the heaviest thing in your life, then guess what? Everything in your life will be drawn to it, centered around it. You know, if it's power, if, if power is the heaviest thing in your life, if that's what you love most, then your relationships, your career, your emotional and mental state, everything in your life will be centered around power. And so what Smith argues is that to change people most profoundly, we must change what we worship. Because worship is what most profoundly changes us. Now, if you don't believe me, look at what's happening in Revelation 4 and 5. Because I want you to notice not only that worship was happening, but did you notice who was praising God? Look at who is praising God. First in chapter 4, verse 4, look again. There are 24 elders seated on 24 thrones wearing 24 crowns. And what that's saying is that they themselves are exalted. They have thrones. They have crowns. They are given authority and glory and honor. 
And then down in verses 6 and 7, there are the four fantastic beings who John struggles to describe. Again, these are beings that are deserving of attention for sure. But look at what they're doing. Verse 9. They are giving glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. And then look at what the 24 elders are doing. Verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. They are in awe of a transcendent being, greater, bigger, heavier, weightier than them. These glorious beings and exalted elders with thrones and crowns, they take the focus off of themselves and they put it on God alone. And here's what that tells us. Worship of God takes the focus off of ourselves and reorders our loves so that we love God more than ourselves. We love him more than power, more than wealth, more than glory, more than honor, more than even our own virtue. You see, the main reason that we need awe is to overcome self-involvement. If we don't have something bigger, something transcendent, more glorious to look at, then we end up becoming utterly self-involved, looking at ourselves. That's what the psychologists have been saying. And here's why fostering awe and overcoming self-involvement is so important. The early church father, Augustine, he taught in the late 4th and 5th century that the essence of sin, he said, was man curved in on himself. And then Martin Luther, the reformer, more than a century later, he actually picked up on this teaching of Augustine, and he taught this. uh, He said that the essence of sin, according to Scripture, is this. Luther said, the essence of sin is that man is so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical but even spiritual goods for his own purposes— and in all things seeks only himself. And so simply put, the essence of sin is to be self-involved and to use everything around you, even spiritual things, to serve only yourself. And so even using spiritual things, it could look like this, that being self-involved might look like saying, hey God, look at all these good and great things that I've done. Look at all the ways that I've honored you. Now you do something for me. But that is actually being self-involved. Worshiping ourselves, curved in on ourselves, wanting God to be curved towards us. Self-involved, asking God to bow down, to curve towards you. But notice in our passage that it is awe that keeps these incredible beings and exalted rulers from being curved in on themselves, from being self-involved. Awe of God keeps you from the sin of self-involvement. That's why we need awe. And more than that, turn over to chapter 5. Because what we see there is that the one person, the one person who could have lived with all the focus on himself, who could have been self-involved and it not have been sin, the one person who could have done that did exactly the opposite. He was so utterly other-centered, so utterly loving, so utterly self-sacrificial. Look what it says about him in chapter 5. And of course, the person we're talking about is Jesus Christ. Because in chapter 5, Jesus arrives in the throne room, 
And here's, there's this eruption of worship where the 24 elders sing in chapter 5, verse 9, about Jesus. You were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you know how to overcome being curved in on yourself? How to overcome the very essence of sin, of self-involvement? It's right here. Begin to worship Jesus Christ who, it says, emptied himself of all of his glory. Who took on the nature of a servant and died sacrificially to pay for your sins. When you become a person who worships Jesus you begin to lose all sense of self-involvement. You're no longer curved in on yourself. It's, in fact, now it's the opposite. When you worship Jesus Christ, it's the opposite because now you're curved towards him. Like the bowling ball, everything in your life now falls towards Christ. And when we begin to worship God like this, when we do it regularly, when we join in hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, annually, with the eternal praise that is right now happening around the throne of heaven, it does for us what the psychologists mentioned earlier, who they're just now finding out. Christians have known this for centuries. Here's what Paul Piff from Cal Irvine concluded about people who regularly experience awe. So he says, our research into awe, in that research we found the same sorts of effects. People felt smaller and less self-important and behaved in a more pro-social fashion. Might awe cause people to become more invested in the greater good, giving more to charity, volunteering to help others, or doing more to lessen their impact on the environment? Answer, our research would suggest the answer is yes. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means Looking up to worship, fostering awe in our lives is more important. It's more important personally for your own soul, for your own emotional state, your own mental state. It's more important than, than you probably ever realized. That regularly walking the well-worn path of this liturgy of up, down, up, and out. Beginning with awe, beginning with worship. Will lead you to spiritual maturity more than anything else. So that's what worship does to us. We've seen what we're joining when we worship. Now we're seeing what worship does to us. But when you and I worship, that worship, actually, the effect of that ripples out. Because it also does something for others. That's part three, what worship does for others. And so to stick with our psychologist friend from Cal Irvine for just one more moment, here's what his study of awe showed in regards to what worship does for others. He wrote, our investigation indicates that awe although often fleeting and hard to describe, serves a vital social function. By diminishing the emphasis on the individual self, awe may encourage people to forego strict self-interest to improve the welfare of others. When experiencing awe, you may not, egocentrically speaking, feel like you're at the center of the world anymore. By shifting attention towards larger entities and diminishing the emphasis on the individual self, we reasoned that awe would trigger tendencies to engage in pro-social behaviors that may be costly for you, but that benefit and help others. 
And once again, in our passage, you see this idea of this worship rippling out from one group to the next, having an effect, a pro-social behavior, serving others. Right? You have the four fantastic creatures in the beginning of chapter 4 singing, holy, holy, holy. And when they do that, then the 24 elders bow down and worship uh, in chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, the ripple effects go even further because the elders... In chapter 5, they're singing and they're playing their harps. This is where harps in heaven comes from, by the way, if you ever wondered. The elders are singing and playing their harps. And then in verse 11, as they're doing that, it says that then all of a sudden, the sound of many angels, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, they join in with the singing. And so you see it rippling out from the creatures to the elders to the angels. And then verse 13 of chapter 5, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. So now it's every creature joins in the praise. And they say, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory forever and ever. And so what you are seeing across these two chapters is that worship ripples out which means that when you worship, it invites those around you to worship. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I was going through a particularly difficult time in my life. Um, I had a, a number of things that were just going wrong, and I was struggling. I was struggling to, to worship. I was struggling to even talk to God. And uh, to make matters worse, I was a pastor in a church. <laughs> And uh, I remember that Sunday I wasn't preaching, and so I was kind of just sitting towards the back. That was, that was how I was feeling. I'm not saying if you're in the back, that's how you're feeling, but that's how I was feeling on that particular day. And so I was sitting in the back, uh, in the back row, and uh, in the next section over, uh, there was somebody else in the church who, because I was her pastor, I knew that she was going through a significantly more difficult time than me. I knew the circumstances of her life were far more challenging than the circumstances of mine. And uh, the worship leader invites us to stand and sing, and I'm just kind of going through the motions. I'm very quietly, I'm probably barely even singing, just making it look like I'm singing, you know. And I see out of the corner of my eye this, this friend of mine. And I know what's going on in her life, and she is belting it out. She is worshiping God with every fiber of her being. And I thought to myself, if she can do that, knowing all that's happening in her life, then so can I. You see that worship lifts us from self-involvement? And it ripples out. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a brilliant German pastor and theologian, he put it this way in his book, Life Together. He said, a Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain, but his brother's is sure. Worship ripples out. When you worship, it fosters awe in the heart of the person next to you. Put that another way. We need you standing next to us here, worshiping. Because when you do that, it encourages my heart. It encourages the heart of the person standing next to you and in front of you and behind you. You see, you think your coming here only affects you. And yes, it does do that. It does affect you. Of course, that's what we've been talking about so far. But you being here affects others maybe even more than it affects you. 
Your awe leads to more awe in the person next to you. Your presence here, your presence in the life of another Christian matters far more than maybe you give it credit for. Now let me just finish by connecting this with what we've been trying to do uh, and will do through this series. So what is it that we're trying to do here? What is it that our church is trying to do? Well, there is a well-worn path of spiritual growth that Christians have walked for centuries. And so what we want to do is foster a whole community of people right in the center of Los Angeles that are walking this well-worn path of this long obedience in the same direction towards spiritual maturity and doing that together. I remember it looks like this. We can go to that slide again. It looks like this. And it's, it's not the novelty of this. It's not, it's not the new thing. It's the longevity of it. It's this ancient, well-worn path. It's doing this liturgy over and over and over again, walking this well-worn path that Christians have shaped and walked for centuries. It's doing this liturgy day by day by day by day at home. And it's doing it at work day by day by day and week by week by week with one another here in church. That is what causes spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. And so then what is Christ Church Los Angeles? It is a community of people all slowing down to walk this well-worn path of spiritual growth together. That's what the church is. And to do it, as I, I quoted this last week, but Japanese theologian Kasuki Kiyama, he said that we do it at the speed of an average person's walk at three miles an hour with a three-mile-an-hour God. And walking that path day by day and week by week always begins with looking up, with awe, with worship. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflection on the Psalms, in a chapter about praise, he writes this. He said, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and great minds. Don't you want that to describe you? The humblest, most balanced and great mind. Do you want that to describe you? Well, here's what he said about them. I had not noticed that those minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. And then he goes on to say a couple lines later, he says, praise is inner health made audible. I like that. The more that we praise, the more healthy we become inside. And the more that we praise, the more that we foster the sense of awe, the less cranky and discontent and self-involved we become. That's why we're walking this well-worn path. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you that you gave these visions to Isaiah and to John of what is happening, even now, surrounding your throne. And we thank you that through the person of Jesus, you have invited us into that. That we too can join in with your praises and that that awe that is generated as we do that changes us, transforms us, means that everything in our life falls towards Christ, that we would our whole lives would be centered around him. And Lord, I pray that would be true of every single person in our church. We pray that that worship would ripple out across the city and more and more people would fall towards you, that you would become the heaviest thing in their life too, orienting our whole lives around you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.